Hi, everybody. Welcome to the INA Podcast Impact. Today, we're going to talk to digital forensic analyst Kate Davenport. When we come back, we'll talk to her in a moment. Hi, Kate. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? All right. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at INA? Sure. I manage the digital forensics unit here at INA. Previously, I was the forensic examiner for Missouri State Public Defender. And before that, I worked at a forensic consulting firm. So you have a lot of background and experience in this field. Slowly but surely, I've been building it up, yes. Yes. Can you generally explain what is digital forensics? Sure. So digital forensics is the process of uncovering and interpreting evidence stored in, or transmitted in digital form. We are like other forensic disciplines, we follow the scientific method in our practices, and that way we can ensure accuracy. And our end goal is to preserve digital evidence in its most original form while analyzing it. It encompasses different branches from traditional forensics to mobile forensics and network forensics, and then there's subsets within those. But here at INA, we mostly specialize in traditional and mobile forensics, which is a vast amount, a lot of branches. And we also actually perform historic cell site analysis, looking at location data for cell phone records. So when should, if I'm a client out there and I'm looking to, uh, so, something's going on, when should I use digital forensics? When should I look to INA or to you to help me out? So having worked as an independent examiner for a public defender, I'm, I have some strong opinions about this. It should always be used or at least a digital forensics examiner should be consulted if digital evidence is being admitted in the court case. You know, a lot of times an attorney or a paralegal or um, law enforcement might take a screenshot of evidence and that would be submitted, but that can very easily be faked or altered. And we wouldn't let a layman collect, you know, DNA or fingerprint evidence. So it's definitely best to use a digital forensic examiner in, in these scenarios. And furthermore, if the opposition party has digital evidence and they have used a forensic examiner, it's a really good idea to have at least an expert review that evidence and the report. This is only gonna serve to, to make all digital evidence stronger because of higher standards and scrutiny. So you, you talked about that screenshot, the faking, or, the, or I'm sorry, the altering of it. So, you know, a client might take a picture of a screenshot and think, why is this not good enough? Can you explain why it's not good enough to Absolutely. People Absolutely. So, you know, a screenshot of a text, first of all, you can label your contact anything and it's going to show up in the screenshot as your ex-boyfriend or whatever, but it might not be your ex-boyfriend. It might be, you know, a text that you've faked online. You can do that in less than five minutes with some different websites, or it might be a different contact that you either made up or it's just a text from somebody else. It doesn't tie the person to the device, to that phone number, the way a forensic extraction and analysis would. I guess this kind of goes to the question, but how do or how can clients use, like what information can you actually gather for a client using digital forensics? So the possibilities are, are really endless with that. We, we can gather communication data, email data, file recovery, like pictures, it, it just, it depends on the device and the situation, but we usually do, you know, we can do a timeline of events on the device. We can preserve 
communication data for legal proceedings. It just, it depends on what the case is. But most of the cases we do will involve a digital forensics component because of the world we live in. We mostly do internal investigations, civil litigation, and some criminal cases, but we also have, like, we have domestic situations frequently, you know, spy monitoring investigations, file recovery, children's device, device monitoring. We've even helped find a runway. We've gotten pictures off of a deceased family member's device. So there's just the possibilities for the applications of digital forensics are endless. So you're not a lawyer, of course, uh, unless, unless you are that I don't know about. But and this is, this should not be considered necessarily legal advice. What are some basic legal parameters for using digital forensics? I mean, clearly you can't just go and grab somebody's phone and bring it into INA, or or can you? No, that's a really good question. And yeah, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> the most important thing with any digital forensic work is making sure that you have the authority to access a device. You have to have authorization from the device owner or someone with the authority to give you that access. Um, and that goes for law enforcement as well. They always have to have, you know, a warrant or a subpoena to access something. We also use best evidence practice. So, you know, we're going to ask you to sign a chain of custody. And once that evidence is in our lab, we're going to account for whatever happens to that evidence. And we're going to make sure it's stored securely when we're not interacting directly with it. And then as far as forensic procedure, the general concept is um, that digital forensics labs follow the federal rules of evidence. The federal rules of evidence state that an authenticated image or copy of the original evidence can be treated as the original. So that would be whatever we find on that copy would be admissible in court. And the way that we authenticate that evidence to make sure it's an exact copy is we um, use hash verification. We apply an algorithm to every bit on that hard drive and we get a unique number. And as long as that number is the, it matches the image that we make, we know that that copy is exactly the same. And if that number changes when we rehash, we know something was altered in the original evidence. It's kind of like a digital fingerprint. So somebody might have the question, why make a copy? Like I understand with the rules of evidence, but are there any other reasons why you would make a copy of the the image? Absolutely. Just so you don't damage it. Because remember, our goal is to preserve it in the most original form while analyzing it. So if you can make a copy of it, that's definitely the best practice, the best way to go about doing that analysis. And the copy is like exactly the same as what? is our on the machine or whatever the yeah. the thing. Gotcha. It's All right. Exactly the same. Yep. So somebody's going to ask, can a deleted email be recovered and can you gather data from services like Gmail and Yahoo mail? Okay. Good question. So let's be clear about the terminology here. Cause when you uh, recover a file, like an email, you're taking something that is deleted. Like maybe you've put it in your recycle recycle bin on your computer and you've emptied your comp- your recycle bin, your file system is showing that the space where your file is, is available to put more data, different data in there. But until that data is actually put in there, we may be able to recover that file. So if you back up your emails or store them locally on your computer, um, they may be recoverable. But if you use like a web-based email like Gmail, uh, then you're, and you delete a, an email and then your trash is emptied, you're going to need a preservation letter and a court order to get 
to get um, that recovered unless you have some sort of managed platform like Office 365 or a backup service. If you if you have those that type of email, it's not necessarily recoverable. And I want to add also with these situations where you're recovering deleted things, time is really important. Um, the longer you wait, the more likely it is that the data is overwritten. As far as gathering data, proper authorization, we do this really often to preserve for court, to do an investigation. And when you when you um, access a Google account, it can be you know involved uh, a Yahoo account, a Office three sixty five account. There can be multiple you know, credentials that we need to get to get into the right account. We need your permission as well. But it's always best to have an independent party perform this collection. And then, you know, Gmail and other ones like iCloud and Outlook, they'll make up kind of a tidy package with email and other accounts, details and activity that we can put into our forensic software. Yahoo and AOL, they're both owned by Verizon, actually, so I'm using both of them as an example. They're not as simple to collect, but we do, we do offer that as well. Is it really possible to completely, completely delete something from your computer, from your mobile device? Is that really possible? Definitely. Uh, sometimes that data is truly gone because it's been overwritten or the device was damaged or wiped or with mobile devices, like you said, the security settings are a big part of whether we can recover that data or not. It depends on the type of data, the way it's stored, and the security settings on the device. So what about, you kind of talked a little bit about this, but is there a time limit after incidents in which you cannot recover some data, or is it kind of just varies depending on what's going on with the computer or the system? It, yeah, pretty much it varies. I mean, it would be really cool if we were if we could say, oh, it's been three months and three days. We can't get that data, but it doesn't work that way. It really depends on the type of device, target data, and how long has gone by, the time that has passed, and the usage activity. So if you stopped using a device but it's been a long time, it might be recoverable. But if you've been using that device every day for a year and you want me to recover you know, an email or something that was stored on the device Probably not. So what about protected files? Can they be accessed on uh, computers, mobile devices, or is that impossible if there's any kind of uh, protection? Sure. As long as we have authorization to access the files, then we have the ability to break passwords most of the time. It depends on how current the technology is. We don't typically do this, though, because like we were discussing before the podcast, our clients are cooperating. They want us to examine their devices. So um, law enforcement typically does this type of thing more, but occasionally with internal investigations, we'll, we'll have some password-protected files that we need to break, and it makes the lab really hot because we're running <laughs> password-breaking machines. So this kind of goes to, and I think you kind of answered it with the, with the copy question, but how do you prevent from destroying the information during the process? So there's there's always a risk whenever you're taking that, electronically stored data, right, that it could be lost. But we've minimized the risk in digital forensics over the years by developing best processes, best practices. Uh, we use write blockers, for example, when imaging storage, storage drives. And we test those write blockers using that same hash authentication regularly to make sure that they don't change the data. So we'll hash a hard drive before we use the right blocker and after to make sure that the right blocker hasn't changed it at all. 
and so we do these kind of tests a lot. Uh, phones are a little different because with a Windows computer, we would probably, unless we were taking the uh, short-term memory, the volatile memory, we would have the, the computer off and take the hard drive out to image it so that it's a dead box forensics. Phone forensics are, are live, so you've got the device on and you're interacting with it, but the the interaction is minimal and there's not a lot of changes to the device and you account for everything that you do. We test to prevent oh, gotcha. data loss to answer your question. <laughs> sure, yeah. Can you explain very simply what is hash? You're, you kept a, you've used that term a few times. I was just kind of curious yeah. what that means exactly. It's for the um, non-voice. <laughs> it's just applying, you have a file or a whole hard drive, whatever amount of the sample set of data that you have, it's just applying an algorithm to that data. You make a unique number and as long as you know the data hasn't been changed, that hash algorithm is going to be the same. If a bit of that data were to be altered, that hash algorithm would change. Okay, so what type of things can hold data that we may not think about? Like, you know, I, mean, I know a few things, but I like interesting to hear any kind of unique things that you've per- pulled some digital forensic data off of, or some things that you know of. It basically anything that you can think of that has uh, like a Wi-Fi connection or Bluetooth is a potential source of data. I've done, we've done like drones and smartwatches. We've done a GPS device. So basically, even if they don't have storage of some sort, some of them have, you know, SD cards and all that, but some of them don't. They're feeding to either an account, like a Google account or an iCloud account, or they're feeding to a device. So a lot of times we can get even more information on that device or in that Google account, even if you don't have that device anymore. So for example, if you had, you know, a phone and you were backing up to your Google account, but you don't have the phone anymore, or maybe you were syncing it with your other devices that were signed in on that same Google account, we could still get a good, a good amount of data. And same for these smartwatches, anything internet of things, you hear that term a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the syncing that we have in these accounts that, if we have access to that Google account or a device that's logged into that Google account, we we have a lot of potential sources of information. And we have just, um, in the forensic world, begun to tap into these sources. There's been a couple cases where smartwatch data has been used to prove someone wasn't where someone said they were or um, that someone was in, in a house uh, committing a crime climbing up steps because it's all things you can tell like their location how many steps they're climbing what their heart rate is so there's the possibilities are are just kind of unfurling every day there's something new it's rapidly developing so after the an investigation is over what do clients of INA get from us at you know when you when you've completed an investigation I assume some kind of report what is that report outline Right. Um, it, it really depends on the case and what the client's looking for. The outcome, like I've talked about simple preservations where we're just preserving communication data and the lawyer might want to just feed that into their e-discovery software to help build a case. If we have findings that are useful for an internal investigation, the attorney might want that in a report. We might just have a phone call stating the results. It, it just depends on the case, really can provide testimony. We can provide assistance and cross-examination based on our findings. Sometimes our findings don't show anything or don't show what they are hoping, the attorney or the client is hoping that it will show, so they don't want a, a formal report at all. It just depends on the situation. Okay, and this will be my final question for you. 
What are some common misconceptions about digital forensics? So many people in in my field would would just say it's the CSI effect that you know we're magicians and that um, what I do should be quick and I should know all the devices and and be able to extract data from anything. But that's not true. <laughs> just as a side note, it's not true because it's everything's changing so rapidly and developing so rapidly. There's close to 30,000 unique Android devices at this point. But my biggest misconception, I would say, that we deal with on a regular basis is that people think it's very easy for their devices to be hacked. If you have a mobile device that is up to date with the latest operating system and your apps are up to date and you have a passcode lock and you, you, know, you haven't jailbroken or rooted your device and you're if you have backups and cloud backups, those are also secure. You use, you know, multiple factor authentication to log onto your accounts where you have to have it text you a passcode or something to that effect. Your device is going to be secure. We get a lot of people who misunderstand technology and they automatically interpret normal device behavior as being hacked. And the exception to this is just, it's still very rare, but sometimes with domestic cases, we will have some some spying because there is access to devices there if they know the passcode or if the passcode isn't in, isn't installed properly or isn't in use, or they have access to you know cloud accounts or synced devices. But if you have the latest proper security, generally, your mobile devices are pretty safe. Okay, great, Kate. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. If you have any questions for us, please send them to info at ina-inc.com, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. Cody. Yeah, Bye. Thanks. Bye.